Hello and welcome to Art Fictions. This is artist Gillian Knipe and I'm creator and producer of this podcast which aims to give voice to both artists and art commentators of different ages, genders, cultures, identities and backgrounds. Today we give a warm welcome to guest artist Anna Barham who discusses her language and meaning-based work through the prism of Companion Piece by Ali Smith, published by Penguin in 2023. Companion Piece suggests many things, like the companionship between the writer and the reader where perhaps the writer becomes some sort of bystander support for the reader while they figure out what to make of the text. Companion piece also suggests the peacefulness of companionship, which makes itself known throughout the book, and perhaps even the peacefulness of companionship of having a book in the first place. So before a page is even turned, we see the inventive playfulness of the title. Anna and I then go on to talk about disfluencies, purity, transcription software, unfolding meanings, easy solutions, social spaces, showing off, silent conversations, undermining binary, performing language, and dog eyebrows, as well as the body in the digital, pushing language around, stories being questions, and the pain of a pain within another body. We end this episode a little differently than usual, so I'd like to give a shout out to Anna Barham's 2009 Magenta Emerald Lapis film, which can be viewed at the tanks in Tate Modern till 10th of September. It's a very simple demonstration of how easily symbols can be transformed and therefore meaning can be changed. The implications of the work are, of course, rather more complex from political manipulation, notions of history and personal interactions. There's also her stilled images on display at the Tube Gallery in Palma, Mallorca, along with work by Sophie Rugrock, who you can hear chatting with Vanessa Murrell about Miranda July in episode 41. As always, please rate us and comment to help those needy little search engines locate our podcast. And also, here's a reminder that Art Fiction depends entirely on volunteers, so any contribution towards production is hugely appreciated. You can do this via patreon.com slash artfictionspodcast. And finally, our email is artfictionspodcast at gmail.com. Please feel welcome to get in touch and tell us about your art practice, the podcasts you listen to, and perhaps anything that comes up in this episode which you'd like to comment on. Okay, as I said recently on my personal Insta story about the possibility of how economically feasible it is to rapidly reduce our fossil fuel assets, hey, let's do this. Welcome to Art Fictions, Anna Barham. Thank you, it's lovely to be here. For our discussion today, you've chosen Companion Piece, written by the wonderful Ali Smith, and published this year by Penguin Books. And I'm going to quickly describe the book. Baffled by a message she's heard while trapped in a passport cell, Martina Inglis contacts Sandy Gray, who she recalls from school, knew how to think about things that everybody more normal would discuss as a bit off the planet. Written in the first person by Sandy Gray, also known as Sand, also known as Shifting Sands, the novel begins with the line, hello, 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 which shapes what's to come. The greeting is voiced by the past, present and future heads of Cerberus, a vicious dog who guards the gates of hell. The novel goes on to develop three strands, one of Sandy and her hospitalised father, 
one of a blacksmith woman who is some sort of ghost or character of the past and a rather alarming one of the frustrating interactions between Sandy, Martina and her family. So let's begin with Anna, why you chose this book. Well, I love Ali Smith as a writer. Uh, This book, I think, because it really hinges on a device that she uses quite a lot, where she'll sort of play between two words or unfold several meanings of one word. So in this book, it really hinges around curlew and curfew. And also it's a kind of distillation, I think, of her process. It felt like it's condensed in this book. So when you say the other works, she's done those four seasonal works. And this one, companion piece, this is the fifth. So it's not really part of the seasonal quartet, but is perhaps an addendum or something to it that brings everything together maybe I don't know what have you read the others I've only read autumn yeah I have read the others yeah she wrote those very quickly like a year each I think and that was during COVID wasn't it I think she began in 2016 so just after the referendum result it's just after Trump or (laughs) so yeah one miserable thing or another and what I think I really enjoy about that attempt or that ambition to do that but also the the way that she's really able to pull kind of contemporary events into the novels and so that continues with this because it's uh, set in COVID when people are still having limited amounts of freedom. Yeah, well, there's Martina and her unmasked family. Mm. And of course, Sandy, the poor thing, her father's in hospital, so she can only visit him and not visit him based on her tests. And everybody has to be masked. And then this family take over her house and they're like, oh, well, we know you, so we don't have to wear a mask. (laughs) While saying they can't taste or smell anything. Yes, (laughs) yes. And I don't really get sick. Mm. Oh, yeah. They really (laughs) made me tense. And that's the thing is you could feel the tension. Ali Smith, when she was writing them, wanted to lessen the gap between the writer and the reader Mm. by having them very quickly written and then very quickly published. And all through the quartet, and obviously through this book as well, you get this collage of bits and pieces and they're delivered in a way that you read really urgently. Mm. You know, uh, uh, there are some parts where it's not a stream of consciousness, but it's purposely unpunctuated sentences that are quite long. And you're reading in them in this complete hurry and there's nothing to stop you or get, make you pause all yeah. through the writing. <laughs> it's really like being with someone, I think, reading her books. Oh, yeah. Say more about that. Well, I feel, particularly in this one, because it's all in the first person... Mm it kind of creates a space that you enter that feels like quite a social space or one way you're not communicating with her, but like you're saying about reducing the distance between the reader and the writer, I think that really comes across and I feel like you're with her. Well, there's this bit where she's dissecting the poem where she talks about the reader. That's right. So there is a part where Ali Smith is talking about, you know, I'm thinking that Ali Smith is Sandy Gray, talking about what a conversation might be. And Sandy's talking about this poem about a person who's miles from land and they've been stranded at sea. And it's a sort of prayer about our aloneness and surviving, except actually that speaker isn't alone at all because I'm reading or hearing the poem or you are if it's you reading it. A conversation with someone or something that's silent is still a conversation. What do you make of it? I think I read a lot for work, if you see what I mean. And I think a lot about what that space of reading is. 
that I'm doing when I read for work. Mm -hmm. And I feel like texts, they are a sort of space that I go into to think. So there's partly what the person has written. So there's that stuff to think about. But then there's, you know, whatever I've been thinking about that kind of intersects with that. So I find that particularly the case with her writing or with certain writers, it's like it really pulls that to the forefront. Mm. So it is a kind of company, I think. Like she says, the writer's not alone because I'm reading it now. And there's also the moment where she's dissecting the E. E. Cummings poem within the text, where she says something similar. And also, just to say, she does asterisk that reading of the poem with some awfulness about the poet. Yes. She's not... (laughs) No, she's not all up for him. (laughs) It was not so much the poem that I wanted to read as, as, as the conversation between her and Martina. This is a scene from when they were both at university and Martina has come for her help with an essay on this E. Cummings poem. And so they begin to discuss it. See, she says, nothing about it means anything. I hate it. Don't be hating a poem, I say. Waste of a strong emotion. Just look at the words. They'll tell you what they mean, because that's what words do. What, she says. They mean, I say. Yeah, but what I mean is, why does he have to make it look so strange with all the spacing stuff he does, she says. It's like he's showing off. Nothing wrong with showing off, I say. Now there, I actually agree with you, she says, though thousands wouldn't. And it only looks strange because we expect spaces round punctuation, I say. And we expect punctuation and syntax to do very expected things. But why do we? Why do we have conventions at all? Because how would we live properly without, she says. No, I don't need an answer to the question, I say. I'm just highlighting one of the questions the poem's speaker's asking, I say. The poem's speaker, she says. You mean the poet? Or is there another person meant to be speaking too? God, I don't understand anything. I mean the person who's there inside your head when you read the poem when the human thing you can hear through its strangeness and the meanings you do recognise, even through the fog of the strangeness, all hit your eye and your mind, I say. What? she says. She looks at me, desperate, teary. And here, I say, the poem, here, it says, I who's also you. So it's also about you, this poem. Me, she says. Whoever the me is who's reading it, I say. Me as well. It's so lovely because Martina is desperate. I mean, she's almost going to suicide for the fact that she doesn't understand the poem. Yeah. I mean, the thing about the poem which comes out is this idea that to fall into not understanding is the best way to understand. Mm. What was your impression of the outcome of that conversation? It preempts what happens later, like chronologically later in the plot of the book where uh, Sandy giving her her interpretation or a story, in fact, in response to this curlew or curfew. She's heard a voice asking these words, curlew or so, curfew. Yeah, Martina has heard this voice, yeah. Uh, when she was held in customs, passing through an airport with this uh, medieval lock that she's carrying. And she hears this voice, curlew or curfew, you choose. And she phones Sandy and Sandy actually kind of responds with a story at that point. It has this shift within the book of changing Martina's life, really. It's like a sort of epiphany for her. And she starts kind of realising the potential in things. She kind of finds wonder in things after that. And I think this relation with the poem is a kind of, it's like a sort of small seed of that idea that gets explored throughout the book. Yeah. She's saved from her suicide and she feels like she can't hold on to what 
she's had with Sandy, like this uh, revelation about the poem. She's quite sort of anxious about that. You know, she's smiling and laughing and really happy through this dis discussion of the poem that they have. She's very happy at that time, but then many years later when she's an adult and trapped in this cell, and she hears the curlew or curfew, you choose, which is later thought about as possibly new shoes. Then she returns to Sandy's way of thinking. She gets in touch with Sandy. But her family can't stand her. No. <laughs> this new person who's like thinking and questioning and enjoying the world. Mm. And when she's caught in customs with this ancient key which we find out that it's assumed that the woman blacksmith, mythological character, whoever she is, she seems to she's be... very elusive, isn't yeah. she? Probably by intention, because it's, you know, is she a ghost? Was she really real? I'm losing my way here a bit. But yeah, so there's this idea that, that there is a key that exists in real life. And then as a metaphor, I suppose. In fact, they do talk about the key. And Martina, her description of it is really beautiful. She talks about how you can never tell by looking at it that it's even a lock or that it has any mechanism at all inside it. Never mind find how or where the key goes into it. It's been made to mimic a lock grown over by ivy leaves. It's as if, if you look at it in your hand, you'd be able to feel it give like you can feel the give of a relief and the tendrils it's literally like they're actually getting longer as you watch as if they're pliable moving and i love that idea of this sort of activated object and if it can move then it can move from being an object into being a metaphor i mean mm. that's how i right. sort of interpreted yes. that yeah. so there's all these mixes of but i think there's meaning a... and yeah exchange there's a kind of ambivalence about undoing a lock as well. I think Sandy's sort of, she's open to kind of indeterminacy and ambiguity and multiple meanings. And she says like a story is a question, it's not a statement. And then there's that thing of when the ghost or apparition of the blacksmith is in her 21st century apartment, mm. she gets in using a key that she calls a dumb. And I felt like if you can get into a lock, it almost makes you dumb. Finding a solution isn't a solution in a way. It oh, I forgot about compresses that. Compresses yeah. the yeah. experience. Like you've just done it. You've got through the door. Like the joy of the... It's too of, easy. Yeah, it's too easy and it's too linear. You've done it. You've got there. But yeah. the, the joy would have been in the journey and the, the possibilities. What did you make of curlew or curfew? So... Curly obviously, well, may not be obvious, but uh, in folklore, it's seen as a bird of bad omen. And the apparition blacksmith has a bird with her, which I think is so funny. Because uh, you can just picture this woman walking around with a, a bird. And there's also this rule of curfew of COVID and lockdown. And there is a whole section on curlew and curfew. Mm. And each of the chapters is called... Things like imagination versus reality and surface versus depth. It's like a series of choices mm. between two things. All that real versus fake. You could look at it this way or you could look at it that mm. way. You've got two eyes, one to look that way, one to look <laughs> the other way. <laughs> so what did you make of all those sort of divisions? There's those characters. So Martina has twin daughters, although one oh. is now using the pronouns they, them. So Sandy actually talks about this idea of 
a plural standing for a singular or the idea of having multiple selves or so I feel like the binary is put there because that's what exists in the world but it's kind of undermined or questioned Mm. throughout the book the curlew I think also has isn't it a symbol of purity too because they thought it just lived on air or something oh, okay. uh, um, I, I think that was I seem to remember that I don't remember the exact part that it's in well there's um, all, the, all those sort of original meanings and mm. source meanings isn't there because Sandy talks about that I mean even the fact that her name's called Sandy Grey mm. I mean, it's like I could just picture that on a paint chart that would be yes. not, not the yeah. colour I would ever paint anything because it sounds so drab but <laughs> she is anything but yes. you know Although at the beginning she's sort of saying, I don't even find any fun in wordplay or something. Yeah, she says it's all much right. of a mulchness or something. And then yeah. she's kind of lost her appetite for, yeah, for she's, that. She's talking about considering if dogs have eyebrows. And she says, everything was mulch of a mulchness to me right then. I even despised myself for that bit of wordplay. Though this was uncharacteristic, since all my life I've loved language. It was my main character. Me, its eternal, loyal sidekick. But right then, even words and everything they could and couldn't do could just fuck off. And that was that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's also things like Martina Inglis, which I assume is English. Yeah. for English. So her married name is Palf, which is a reference to money or riches uh, that are normally gained dishonestly. Like um, pilfering, is there a connection? I assume so. Yeah. But her, her and her family, I mean, it comes back to what you're saying, just occurring to me now, that they're kind of cheating. Mm. It's almost like Sandy is the cheat sheet. Martino is gaining this more worldly way or this this more imaginative way of considering the world almost through instruction not through her own devices Mm. and then her daughters end up being the same that's funny because i'm you know even though she doesn't like martina i mean she says she really didn't like her when they were Mm. at college together there's something about and i think i find this in ali smith generally that it doesn't feel judgmental about characters at all like there's always kind of hope i think somehow that there's something in everyone like if you just kind of could clear all the crap off the top you know that everyone has some kind of hope inside them i think yeah and is it also perhaps that the interaction with martina and her daughters that somehow animates sandy in some way because you know she has this exchanges with her father and some of them are quite funny like he's explaining to her how a car engine works Mm. and he's saying tell me a word for fuel and she says you and he says what do you mean me Mm. and she says you you're a fool you're an old fool Mm. (laughs) and things like that you know what's petrol and her answer is yeah what about prices yeah (laughs) petrol so she's had all these word plays with her father and then he becomes hospitalised mm. and, and he's not accessible. And seeing as he could be on death's door... Yeah, he's unconscious, isn't he, for some it's, of it? It's touch and yeah, go, yeah. and she's told it's touch and go. You're really on edge about that. That's mm. really horrible. But then Martina turns up and her daughters turn up and she can sort of invest her language and her wordplay with them, mm. you know, because they're both very angry to begin with and one of them says, we want a word. And she says, which word would you like? (laughs) (laughs) Which is a bit faulty towers. (laughs) I thought that was fantastic. What were the daughters' names again? Eden Eden and Lee. Right. But at first they're just referred to as one has a Celine bag 
So oh, that's the Celine yes. twin, and the other one has they them written on their t-shirt. So yeah. that's the they twin. Yeah. Actually, that makes me think of how things are named. Mm. You know, I mean, of course, there's the apparition who is referred to as looking like she's a liar and an Egyptian, which is apparently the origin of the word gypsy. gypsy yeah. And uh, she has the V seared into her skin mm. she describes it as being like a greater than sign in maths or the open yeah. beak of a bird so presumably yeah. it's orientated like it's on its side on her body rather yeah. than being upright like a v it's on her collarbone isn't it yeah there's also a fair amount of so on the one hand ali smith writes with these passages that have very little punctuation in them and then there are other times when it's very short and sharp so it's very back and forth. And then she drops into this, I, I suppose, more sort of classical, traditional ways of writing that become quite poetic. And I'm just going to read one of them. Above me, the trees were bright with the beginnings of their new green. A bird hurled across the piece of sky through the greenness, called beyond itself. The trees spoke their language. The light and dark took turns. What I knew was my own absence. What I sensed, clear as unruined air, was the ghost of a chance, a different presence. I mean, somehow that sums up the whole book to mm, me. Mm. But I couldn't tell you, I couldn't draw any kind of straight lines from one thing to another. Mm. And I know that the idea of presence comes up in your work quite a lot. Were there any other parts that you wanted to highlight in the book? I wondered what you thought about the... So Sandy also is a painter and paints these oh, yes. poems letter by letter with the letters on top of each other. Yeah. And I wondered what you as a painter felt about that. Yeah, I find that quite interesting in two ways for me personally because I've worked with text in different ways before mm. in my work. And one of them, for instance, was a painting I did for my cousin's family after she died. And it was very much about taking the letters of her name, but also if you make mm. a stencil, you have all the discards. Mm. And that sort of playing around with using text and then making something out of the discards, that then has turned into shapes in my practice. Mm. And so if I do a zigzag, to me, it's possibly text but it's also possibly a sound wave mm. uh, but it's also possibly a zigzag so you know to not pin down language into necessarily to represent words that can be quite formal shapes and one of my favorite painters Laura Owens does that with letters of the alphabet considering them perhaps well I mean I don't know what her motivation was but mm. you know I find those things really enchanting sort of bringing things back to almost like a childlike wall freeze or you know how you might have the alphabet on yes. your kid's wall yeah that they must first start recognizing shapes and yeah so words are shapes mm. before they're anything else mm. so yeah that's what i made yes that. and i wanted to see what the they paints, were like yeah the paintings yeah i mean i think it really like you said seeing a letter as an image yeah and then of course a word makes an image but that's a different kind of image but it kind of gave me this sense of everything like the the girl having the v burnt onto her and the twins being identified by the the letters they're kind of carrying on objects you know this kind of conflation of image and language and the world's being mediated through 
language, I suppose. Maybe we tend to think of them as quite separate things, but she's making them more entwined. And that seems to really come out. Like even just, I'm looking at a page now and I can see that she's used V like as short for very, but it really jumps out off the page, especially because you're like mm. thinking of these Vs and the story of the letter being formed from the shape of a bird in the first place. And, and did you read that online? Yeah. Unfortunately. You're, look, you're looking very worried when I you say that. I mean, it's handy to read on a device. Yeah. When I wanted to read this book, I went into two or three bookshops, no one had it. Yeah. And so I bought it on my device and read it there. But I find that I can't locate myself. I really enjoy that physical space of a book where you sort of remember that something was, you know, this much through by holding that paper in your hands. So that's why I have a pained expression, I suppose. Yeah. Some books work in in different forms mm. so the milkman for instance i've listened to that three times mm. because the voiceover the narrator is so beautiful mm. i could never read that book in that way and with this book there were parts that i just stopped and read out loud because mm. they're just so enjoyable mm. but i have tried a couple of times i did buy a kindle and i didn't get on with it for exactly that mm. reason i just became so disoriented and i did a it was actually a podcast I did with Nicola Beerling, the painter, and I got lost as to where I was yeah. half the time. But I bought mine, being a good citizen that I am, from bookshop.org, which I hugely recommend okay. because they are set up to support independent bookshops. So double thumbs up there. Okay. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to bring up, which is a bit left of field, which is about the curlew. I mean, it's such a curl you isn't it yes um, you just start questioning everything you're you're saying and it's like when i go and see your work or your performance mm. or i listen to something you've done then that way of thinking about words is always in my head and one of my favorite things was my daughter when she's very young in the car saying why do all the houses have toilet signs on them I couldn't fathom what she was talking about. <laughs> and what I realised was she meant the sequence of billboards that say to let. Oh, I see. Because she was just learning yes. to read. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think also the yeah. curlew curfew, I kept thinking of the word curlicue as well, oh, which yeah. she doesn't yeah. seem to use in the book. That is the good thing about digital books, because you can search for a word and see whether it exists in the book. But yeah, this idea of a kind of, you know, a flourish made by a pen seemed mm. to tie Sandy the painter and Sandy the the sort of interpreter of the world together, you know, her verbal kind of yeah. play. It's interesting though, and we will need to move on to your practice. Um, I'm just thinking about how her father gets frustrated with her, but they just share such a laugh. He is disappointed that she's been very bright and as far as he's concerned, has never made anything of herself. And yet he's so saved at this point of his severe illness by her words you know, mm. he wants her to say words to him yeah it's like he values it but doesn't value it at the same time yeah her, yeah yeah like it can't be traded or it can't mm. be that you can't put a price on it etc mm. what were you going to say i mean he asks her for words earlier in her life as well like when he's dropping her at university and yeah. he says something like you know tell me some things about words the way you do you know <laughs> yeah. so she clearly has this that everybody values uh in some way yeah, in her case, it doesn't make her any money. I guess in Ali Smith's case, it yeah. has been translated into a, a career. But well, she, Sandy is not a kind of successful... She says she sells her paintings for a couple of hundred pounds sometimes, yeah. doesn't she? It's yeah. not a... Like most of us. Yeah. <laughs> Sadly. As much as there's humour, there's also a fair amount of darkness. 
I mean, at one point she goes on a bit of a misery rant, which is, again, one way of looking at the world and and all those things being incredibly true. Mm. And they're about COVID and the politics and all the extra deaths that Mm. happened during COVID. I mean, I had a bad taste joke during COVID of finally the British are really successful at something else aside (laughs) from colonialism, which is killing their own people. And I think as well, you know, all the sort of jokes about parties in parliament etc coming Mm. out now and all the memes about that and 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 it's just so shallow compared to literally what people suffered so there was something about that that reminded me of well actually it's probably better explained if i if i read this bit out which is if anyone approaches them when they do find somewhere they can get rest a bird a curlew wakes her to warn her this is in reference to the apparition the blacksmith with its what, what, what coming through its chest and into hers. But the world with people in it is a kind of filth compared to this afterlife she did not actually need to die to find. I mean, I I just found that really profoundly sad and dark, but also really beautiful that this bird with its what, what, what Mm. coming through its chest and into hers, you know, this beautiful connection between the two. And they seem like they're sort of looking after one another. Yeah. But it did remind me, actually, of this song by Nick Cave called Christina the Astonishing. And the lyrics are, Christina the Astonishing lived a long, long time ago. She was stricken with a seizure at the age of 22. They took her body in a coffin to a tiny church in Liege, where she sprang up from the coffin just after the Agnes Day. She soared up to the rafters, perched on a beam up there, cried, The stink of human sin is more than I can bear. Christina the Astonishing behaved in a terrifying manner. She died at the age of 74 in the convent of St. Anna. And that brings us to you, Anna. (laughs) Look at that. What I mean by that is that we almost turn a full circle from something that is, and I think Ali Smith does this as well, where she's talking about the miseries of the contemporary world and at any time of existence, it's always the contemporary world and there's always miseries, mm. of course. And then she's shifting from that into language and the Nick Cave song ends with this idea of this character, Christina the Astonishing, who has obviously lived and died and lived and died repeatedly like the blacksmith mm. girl who's been left for dead in a ditch and then you could say rises again to continue living and then comes back in the present moment. And it's a bit like picking up on the Saint Anna and the name Anna and anagram and anna meaning grace or favor but it also means i found out it's a former indian copper coin worth one sixteenth of a rupee wow (laughs) so it's either this beautiful grace and favor or it's really quite worthless (laughs) you're gonna have to state your case (laughs) what else did you want to say about the book yeah the last thing was about the girl's relationship with the curlew and how when she's left in that ditch and somehow she's aware of this curlew, isn't she? And then it comes to lie with her. And she's worried about it. I don't think it's been hurt, but she is talking about the possibility of it being hurt and how she would feel that pain and how that kind of pain of a pain in another body is actually almost more painful than the pain she's feeling from having been raped and dumped in the ditch. So there's this kind of 
imagination of pain. You know, we feel as the reader, read it, well, I did, and this kind of empathetic pain that can kind of be transferred through the telling, hmm. I suppose. I thought that was a really nice way of describing it, like her concern for this curlew. Hmm. And in fact, that makes me think about transferences that happen through the book. And we did mention the transference of conversation from being with her father to being with Martina and her mm. family. But do buy the book and read the book. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's a really special experience. I mean, I'm, I need to read the other seasons. I've read The Accidental and How to Be, How both. To be both. Yeah. yeah. There's something to do with that style of writing, which... I mean, it's in that E. Cummings poem about falling and Mm. falling into the work. And that is exactly what my experience is with your work. So I just thought that was completely magical. And there's something about the fabric of the work from Ali Smith, the fabric of her writing, where she intermixes these different styles of writing, which create this inconsistency and... I always find this an issue in the art world, whatever Mm. that is, where there is an expectation of consistency, as if people are really consistent. I find it so annoying because, you know, most people throughout history aren't or weren't. Mm. We just pick up, we cherry pick parts of them that look consistent and then present them as thus. Um, Anyway, it's a bit off topic. but So she has these sequences of short choppy sentences followed by flow of of barely punctuated text and there's this sort of lack of rhythm in a way but that's the rhythm Mm. you know like jazz or something where you sort of return to something and I really connect that as well with work of yours that fits into rhythms Mm. and and that which doesn't which more comes through in the later work but maybe I'll do a formal introduction first so Anna your earlier training is in maths and philosophy of maths before you attended the Slade and the official line is you work across video sound print installation and performance considering the transformation of sense as language is translated between different material forms technologies and bodies this brings into question how authorship is distributed and what kinds of subjectivities are formed through these processes Whereas I would describe your work <laughs> as something I've experienced online at 401 Contemporary, at Chelsea College and at Large Glass Gallery, though I know you've also recently performed at Banner Repeater and Flat Time House. And I find myself becoming slightly lost in the delivery of the language where I pick up familiar signposts of words that I connect with, the way that you were talking about the V, for instance, that pops out in the text. And it's sort of like wandering through a strange sort of corridor of sound and almost as if logic has been driven to its extremes to become not really a logical but maybe something else so I wonder if you could describe in your words where your work's coming from. Well I think it comes a lot from this thing that Ali Smith talks about like the way that curlew and curfew as an example have one consonant that's different but that kind of completely changes the meaning of the word, obviously. So that's something that's both in terms of how it's spelt, but also in terms of how it sounds. And in my work, I transfer between those two things. So I'm often working between reading something and then transcribing it or, or a computer transcribing it. So turning it back into text and then rereading and retranscribing. So these kind of slips happen in between language, in between words sounding like one another. Um, In earlier work, in anagrams, by rearranging the letters of a word and you suddenly get another sense. 
So it's this, uh, for me, this kind of amazing frisson or kind of possibility that happens in this pushing language around. Pushing language around, I, quite, I like that. So in the earlier works, we've seen you reading aloud to a tap dance performance and creating anagrams. For instance, your book, Return to Leptus Magna, which is available through your website. And I happen to be sitting with one here. <laughs> But where is this term, return to Leptis Magna, from? Um, well, Leptis Magna is a city in Libya now, but it was an ancient Roman city before that, a Phoenician mm-hmm. city. Um, and in the early 19th century, the British and the French as well, I think, started excavating the site and just sort of pilfering. There we are, back to pilfer and pelf. Yeah. Um, <laughs> pilfering stones um, and then using them however they wanted in the UK and in France. I think there's some stones from Leptis Magna in the Louvre. I mean, not on display, but in the fabric of the building. And then some of the British ones got turned into a folly in Windsor Park at a place called Virginia Water. It was kind of the beginning of me working with language. At the Slade, I studied sculpture, or that was the department I was in. And I was really interested in ruins and in this idea of the potential of a ruin, like in terms of how you would imagine what wasn't there, as well as possible reconfiguration. But this using of the stones from one place, all these architectural kind of building blocks from one place, and creating something quite different in another place, that was kind of made me think about rearranging the letters of a word and how you get a very different meaning out of the word. And it just so happened that Leptis Magna was this incredibly fertile set of letters. And I made a lot of anagram works using just those letters. And then I wanted to make a book. I'd been making these drawings, which um, explored the anagrams, you know, across a piece of A2 paper. And I wanted people to be able to hold them and read them more slowly, because reading in a gallery is a pretty horrible experience, I think, you know, reading something that's on the wall. So I wanted to make a book. But I needed more letters. I kind of needed more fuel for the anagram machine, as it were. And so I put the letters return to in combination with the letters of Leptis Magnum, because you, you gained a U and some R's and an E. It really enlarged the, the scope. Yeah, for me, it's like trying to start Wordle a different way each time right. with as many vowels as possible <laughs> yes. so I can discount them. So that work was very much Anna doing analogue, but you then have moved into digital dialogues. And uh, in fact, in the book, there is a printout of... It's actually an artist who came up in my conversation with Jennifer Higgy recently on this podcast, and that's William Blake. And it's a printout of one of his paintings, which I find just amusing. So it's something that's being produced in an analogue way with somebody's hand meets some sort of digital copy of an extraction and a question of source you know it's a really muddled idea I think about you having sourced from Plato to your writer friend Bridget Crone and developed these live production reading groups where you're working with transcription software and I understand that the software learnt your voice Mm. and that led you into something else so maybe you could tell us a little bit about that yeah sure so the connection from the anagrams to that is really that I was reading the anagrams out as a kind of read performance Mm -hmm. work and sort of thinking more and more about the sound of language particularly because you get a lot 
lot of repetition in those kind of texts because they're all written from the same group of letters. And also I'd been thinking of the alphabet as a technology of language. And it, I guess it's an accident of the time that I was making this work, that that was also when uh, sort of voice recognition and dictation became much faster, like you could have it on your phone and things. So I got involved in thinking about how computers or yeah machines, how they could hear language as sound and turn that back into words. And I made a piece of work called Double Screen, which used Bridget's wonderful text. And I was reading it over and over and over again and being transcribed each time by my phone in that case to generate different versions of the text. But I found it was learning my voice. And so I was having to like put on accents and sort of speak really quickly or slowly to try and add some variation to my voice. And then I had the sort of realisation that I could use other people and get people to take turns reading and then it couldn't learn the voice. So that was the beginning of this format that I've called a live production reading group. And so one of the pieces that came out of that was the text undone in the face. Yeah. So whilst it's very interesting to describe the work, why don't we hear some of it directly? (laughs) Because it's much easier to understand. So do you want to introduce that and then read some of it? Yeah, Undone in the Face was written from quite a lot of texts. There's some Judith Butler right at the beginning, um, and then I might be missing a few out. Then it goes to sort of Gertrude Stein, and then it goes to Flaubert, The Temptation of St. Anthony. And there's other texts mixed in as well, but they're kind of the main ones. So I would generate lots of different versions of texts in the live production reading groups. And then this sort of writing process edits a lot of that material together and discards a lot of it as well. And this piece, Undone in the Face, I mainly have performed these texts or they've been used as the voiceover for video work or they're just sound work. But this piece actually started wanting to see how they would behave in print. So uh, this one is actually part of an anthology called Intertitles um, by Prototype. Let's face it, sit, sights. Sights wouldn't told to each other. Let's face it. Let's face it. Let's all take that as of love. Love, look, let's face it. We're undone by each other. There, I'm undone. Wouldn't talk to each other. And my thoughts told to each other. We're undone. And if we're not, we're missing something. I'm, I'm, if we're not, we're when not to misuse. This seems so clear. Clearly thoughts import, so cool, see, cool, see. This seems so clearly the case with grief, the kinds of grief. You seem missing something. You see so clearly the case with grief, kinds of grief, centre like old times. Please, like old times. This seems so clearly the case with grief. So can't we, like old times? But it can be so only because it was, because it was already can be sent and because it is already the case with desire. You want desire. One, because I can, you want, wonder does, what it is, what's to his, because of an advocate. You want the case with desire. Ready the case with the final one, because wonder does not always stay intact. One does not always stay intact themselves, they say. Facing, spacey, stacy, ecstasy, you suck. I'll stop there goes on for quite a bit longer (laughs) yeah (laughs) and that is in film form as well as uh, light suede's crossing on your website yes yeah yeah so you can listen to the whole thing uh 
if you like, and it is a joy. In fact, what I like about listening to that, and I got something completely different out of it just right. from what you were saying then, is that you pick up things like the idea of the sea of grief, grief and sea. Mm. Um, and the first time I was listening to it, I was really picking up more on witch and witches and Medusa. and But it's also lovely, I mean, this is something I just really enjoy doing anyway, to be drawing while you're listening to mm. things like that and just see what nonsensical stuff comes up. Have you had much feedback from people about the experiences like of listening? Of listening. I mean, people describe it as quite sort of mesmerising. They describe being getting quite caught up in one image and then sort of losing a thread and then, you know, getting kind of snagged on something else again. Someone described it as... Um, like trying to swim in the sea, you know, where you're... So you have your own movement, but then there's this counter-movement of the sea That's going right. on. Yeah. That's yeah, a lovely but... description. Yeah. So you've you've shifted from analogue into a more digital space, almost accidentally. Uh, and what other sort of difficulties or particular challenges have you faced um, in your you know, maintaining your art practice that have also shaped, you know, how you how you go about creating your work. I mean, we are recording this in your studio, which is in your home. Yes. With the most magnificent bookshelf sitting next to me. <laughs> <laughs> so that in itself, to discipline yourself, to work from home, I, I mean, this is obviously a lockdown thing as well. Yeah. It's interesting because you... You were talking about the shift from dig from analogue to digital and then you said, what other problems have you encountered? I mean, yeah. I guess whilst you were talking about analogue to digital, I was thinking about, yes, but I think what I'm always trying to do is to kind of put the analogue back in the digital or at least put the, put the body back okay. into the digital. And then maybe what links with having a studio at home, it, like mm. everything is quite muddled up. In the same way that I think when you're reading something, you might also be wondering what you're going to have for tea or like you yeah. know how is your train late real life does impinge on mm. everything we do and what about other artists who have perhaps inspired you or been a significant influence on your practice and recently i've been reading and watching a lot of moira davy she has this amazing technique in her films where she's reciting a text by listening to it on her phone in an earpiece and then sort of speaking over the top and you get little snatches of her recorded delivery as well as her actual delivery and so it has she's this... trying to do this in real time yeah. yeah okay and it has this amazing sort of distancing effect i mean she she talks about it how you know if you're reading something out it's actually quite hard to follow something that's been written to be read like read as in mm -hmm. with your eyes mm -hmm. and then to follow it when someone's reading it out unless they're like a sort of professional actor or and then she kind of developed this to sort of distance herself she thought it'd be better to learn the text rather than read it out but it was such a long text that she couldn't do that so she used this method instead and it has this amazing kind of quality of, of redacting itself because you hear snatches of the recording as well as her then speaking oh, over so is it. it sort of is it, the effect like an echo or something not it's not as pronounced as that because you no. don't really hear it all the way through 
also because she's listening and then repeating it's like there is a kind of removal process she turns herself into maybe more of a machine through this more physical process with the language of hearing and repeating rather than having to either remember or read and give intonation Mm. so I'm really fascinated with that and also the way that she writes is really interesting. I think she brings in all sort of ideas about her process, which is rooted in photography, Mm. as well as with biographical details about her family and herself and other things she's read or seen. And I I really enjoy that mixing of everything. Mm. And that's another repeat, isn't it, to create a photograph? Yeah. And speaking of reading, I did notice, Moira Davey, when I came in here on your bookshelf, and you also have Ridley Walker by Russell which Lindsay Sears discussed with Elizabeth Fullerton on this podcast. And Claudia Rankin is a bit of a favourite of Cherry Smith, who's a poet who has been on this podcast as a host. But you've got a fantastic, I'm going to actually say or admit rather intimidating line of books there. But who else are you reading or who's on the top of your list normally? Well, I got these out because they're what I'm... uh going to read over the summer so these okay. are not things I've read yet but uh Lisa Robertson do you know her no idea so I really like her she's a poet um she mm-hmm. writes essays she wrote a novel called Baudelaire Fractal which I really enjoyed and this is cinema of the present yeah but from what I read you know like the sort of blurb I read it is again trying to kind of talk about one thing through another thing and this sort of uh, accumulation of images and ideas rather than a kind of linear essay form. so how did you get onto her Uh, She wrote an essay called The Prosody of the Citizen, which is all about vernacular language and Mm. and how that's a sort of, yeah, prosody of the citizen. Oh, right. I'm very interested in things that get called disfluencies. These these bits of... That word I like. Yeah, Yeah. of of how we speak, in fact, that tend to be in the eye of uh, linguists. They're not sort of how language should be spoken, but they are the reality of how people speak like all our ums and ahs exactly yeah. um, and also when you sort of self-repair like you or clarify what you've said or you know this not finishing sentences or you know this kind of thing if you yeah. do any transcription work I don't know if you've ever tried transcribing conversations mm-hmm. but you know Many it's amazing times. how little actually gets said because people rely on the sort of nods and then they maybe don't finish that sentence because they think the person already is on board with that idea so this this actual performance of language I'm really interested in and she talks about vernacular in those terms. So the performance of language that also comes into something else that you've looked into which is the mechanical or the the human muscles that make language or make sound and how that is recognized. Can you explain that because I find that really interesting. Yeah the vocal apparatus. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. So yeah when I was making liquid consonant well I was interested in how language comes to have meaning. And there's this Plato text um, called Critilus where he's asking that exact question, whether mm. words just have arbitrary meaning or whether they have any inherent meaning. And the sort of answer to them having inherent meaning that is proposed is that it's the way that our mouths move in pronouncing them that gives them meaning. So it's not the way they actually sound. So it's not an onomatopoeic mechanism, but it's the muscles of the mouth. So he uses this example of the rolled R in Greek, rho, and because your tongue is like, like it's flickering around in your mouth, that that would be appropriate for words that describe motion. And then he lists all these words that describe motion. But one of the things I found so fascinating about that is that current research shows that 
in fact, when we hear someone speaking, we don't interpret the sound for sound. We interpret what muscle movements that sound is indicative of. And it's the understanding of what you would have to do to produce that sound in your own mouth muscularly that is where the comprehension takes place. I, d- I just find that fascinating. Yeah. It messes with my head. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is where the problem is <laughs> in the first place. So in an about turn that feels in synergy with your work, Anna, and also with Ali Smith's companion piece, we're going to end today's podcast by listening to an extract of your work. And so I firstly need to say thank you, listeners, and also thanks to today's guest, Anna Barham, for being on Art Fictions. Thank you very much for having me. It's been really fun. So for this a bridge podcast, the music was written and performed by Griffin Knipe, produced and edited by myself and the animated animator. Joanna Quinn is responsible for our logo. We're going to listen to an excerpt now from Anna's work titled ZYX, which I have to say really slowly because of course I want to say XYZ. And unlike the rhythm of Undone in the Face, this piece is stilted, interrupted and somehow glitched so it holds both the voice and the digital mechanisms in the work. And uh, coming back for a moment to Ali Smith and the possible hallucinations that she is experiencing uh, during the COVID years, the content of ZYX refers to hallucinations as a kind of uncontrolled perception. And so in the accompanying notes, which you can access on apria, A-P-R-I-A dot artes, A-R-T-E, z.nl and you clarify that the phenomenon you were interested in was the feeling of believing what you see of not being able to separate the image and the reality and of that belief altering subsequent behavior or interpretations which i find really compelling and it reminds me of my ideas about memory we don't really recollect something that happened like a film Mm. you know like a scene from a film but our act of attempting to recall creates something completely new which intermixes the past and present Mm. if there is such a thing as the Mm. presence so can you perhaps introduce that work and then we'll pop it on the podcast it does finish with the words with grief if someone has been a consistent valued presence in your life The brain is so used to predicting them, it may continue to do so, overruling the world we're missing. Of course, you say it more beautifully than that, but (laughs) I mean, there's this profoundly opposite thinking from defining what is present as a material presence. So that's that's one outtake that I would get from that piece. For me, it's a really emotional work. It uses some real life experiences of my own mixed in with other texts. It's actually the first time that I've used my own writing as a source for the process of putting it through the automatic speech recognition. I made it by this process I've been working with in the last couple of years where I've been cutting all the bits that I think a computer would ignore out of speech Mm -hmm. and then kind of emphasising those parts of speech. So all the ums, the ahs, the stutters, the breathing, the kind of over-enunciated beginnings and ends of words. These are these disfluencies. Yeah, they are disfluencies, but it's, it's extra stuff as well. But what I consider to be a kind of residue of the voice in terms of a machine not 
being interested in that part because it's somehow Mm -hmm. extra to the sort of very basic word. Yeah, I was interested in the idea of machine learning is described to hallucinate when it starts going down a sort of wrong chain of predictions. So that's what the piece talks about. But I, I made a parallel with more human experiences of hallucination, one of which is from taking acid, and the other one is experience of hallucination because of grief mm-hmm. so um, the bereaved can quite often hallucinate the person who's died and that's where that line at the end is come from a text describing that experience where you go into a room and you're just so used to seeing the person there that you still see the person there mm. okay let's have a listen okay we were going to take text together we're going to take text together He had got these Michael Doctor Who, who will you miss her, they said. They said. They said. We were going to take acid together. They said they were only three days old. City were really good. He thought that they said they'd taken three of them. He liked excess. Healing into this mishearing took three of these Michael Dodds, and it was an experience through normal. Michael Dodds is at odds. I mean, ends. <laughs> 